BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We've got a couple big topics to discuss today in uh, this episode here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hey, Josh. What's up? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So we're going to talk about sort of new dimensions of the Trump-Russia story, but this has to do with the inauguration. Right. And every presidential inauguration has an inaugural committee, which is almost like a campaign in the sense that it is a a separate organization. It has to follow at least most of the rules that a campaign does. What are the, you you obviously can't be a foreign citizen and contribute. Uh, this is this is our our colleague Josh Kovensky, hey. uh, who's who's we're, we're he's actually coming in 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 the next segment. Yeah. But let's just pretend <laughs> that he's appearing um, pre being introduced. Yeah, w- can you? Are there limits? Same kind of limit system as in the campaign? In terms of amount, just the amount of cash. No, the limits. Right. Uh, there, there are really few limits. And one thing that former but they inaugural, found a way to break them. Exactly. Okay. So former inaugural committee chairs have pointed out to me that Congress has almost like just not regulated this area of campaign finance or of just political finance. But one of the few areas in which it is regulated is saying that foreign citizens cannot contribute money, and that's what the investigation is into. Right. Right. And 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 so that kind of. Cuts on a few different levels, but at least some of the people who are on the radar of the Russia investigation seem to be in that category. And then then there's that whole other dimension of the Russia investigation, which actually is people from the Gulf states. And some of those seem to also be connected to the Russia stuff, but they've got their own kind of fish to fry with Trump and and sort of buttering him up and stuff like that. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about talk about the media business a little because it's been yeah, it's been a rough couple of the last couple of weeks have been big layoffs everywhere. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and and just what just what's going on there. One of the I'm forgetting her name. It's a woman who Used to be the public editor of the New York Times, Margaret Sullivan. Yeah, Margaret Sullivan, and and now as a is a columnist of the Washington Post, and she pointed out that what is particularly striking about these layoffs is that we're in a very hot economy. I mean, we can talk all about like you know, is our our wages rising fast enough, and and. Is, is it Trump's doing? But the reality is unemployment is very low. Yeah, it's like 3.9%, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, so, so the fact that, that you're having, like, you know, big layoffs at the peak of the economy, uh, you know, the peak of the business cycle, what's going to happen at, you know, when, when, when things go south, yeah. which, which does seem, in some ways, is just overdue, but there's certainly uh, uh, warning signs about the economy. Yeah. Anyway, before we get too further in, let's have a word from our sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Want to become a true office hero? Treat yourself and your coworkers to the best iced coffee in the country with a 42-serving bag-in-a-box from Grady's Cold Brew. Now shipping to 20 states on the East Coast, 
Are there 20 states on the East Coast? I guess there are. There's some pretty small states yeah, up in, up in, New the, England, up in yeah. the Northeast. They also may have a, like an expansive definition of the East Coast. Uh, 20 states on the East Coast. This coffee concentrate pours from a spigot just like boxed wine. So help yourself to cup after cup of Grady's signature New Orleans-style flavor, freshly brewed with chicory for just a hint of all-natural sweetness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. I noticed at least two of us have are actually. I, have, I was just testing Grady's out that very right spigot now. we were talking yeah, about. It works yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. And and as I mentioned last week, it's like you know, wine in a box is sort of like not your best wine, <laughs> right. right? But like this is like don't apply that. Yeah, to, college uh, students should get on board. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It, you know, if you're you're hitting the Starbucks or something like yeah. that, especially now. That it's a we, good time to we switch. Know the, we know the we know the the ugly truth about <laughs> Howard Schultz. So tonight we have the State of the Union address, right? Which was supposed to happen a week ago today, right? On yeah, yeah. And then it was pushed. You yeah. know, Pelosi and Trump had that kind of right. back and forth. He right. eventually backed down, submitted to her. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, we have it tonight, nine p.m. A colleague, old colleague of mine, Alex Seitzwald, I thought kind of summed up everyone's feelings about the State of the Union today. He tweeted. Like, uh, you know, tweet your, your, the most memorable line from a state of the union that you can remember. And it's basically radio silence. It's like, I was trying to even remember anything. I can remember a line. Yeah. What's yours? The, you lie. Well, right. But that, not even like line. part of the speech, but <laughs> right, yeah, no, exactly. No. It kind of feels like the most interesting moments are all around the speech. It's not even the, it's not the address itself. It's all the sort of atmospherics that are happening in the periphery. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you have divided government in any way, you're probably not gonna you're not gonna get legislation of, right. any, of any of any sort. So yeah, it's 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 all sort of like notional and optics and stuff like that. And it's just it's just canned. Yeah. I'm curious tonight I'm curious how long the speech will be. Generally it's like about an hour, hour and fifteen, maybe slightly longer in the sort of most I don't know, extended circumstances. But the White House schedule tonight says Trump is speaking at nine ten. And I think he departs the Capitol back to the White House at like 10 or 9.45 or 9.50. Sometimes, so I think it's only going to be like a 45-minute speech. Well, if he actually, if he, if he arrives at 9.10... That's when I think he starts speaking, oh, apparently. Starts so speaking maybe that 9, takes into account the extended wind-up where right. you're you know, right. slapping hands yeah, and backs yeah, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, I mean, look, that's I could support that. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, it's, 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 it's... Well, it's boring and you're really... The only thing that is news is reactions, yeah. sort of weird optics of reactions, you know, kind of yeah. what what someone says on Twitter exactly. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Pelosi's facial expressions, maybe we'll see if that's... Well, see, that that's one thing that I have... People haven't made too big a deal out of it. And, and maybe this is receded with miscellaneous other things that have happened in the last week. But it has seemed to me that... This has dramatically raised the 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 reality that that this is President Trump coming to her place. She controls the House of Representatives. He had we we treated it as just a given. This is just automatic. But actually, the the Speaker has to invite right. the president. She controls the floor. Yeah, and she showed she controlled it. <laughs> right. So I, I'm I'm curious how much that is going to be. And it, it, I bet it will be a bigger thing than people are expecting because again the lack of the fact that there's not a lot else going on you're looking for news yeah and um considering how how important to him 
just the optics of control sure. yeah. and stuff like that. I I think that's going to just be an issue that you know sh- he's there because right. she said it was okay. Right. Um, and if the Democrats are like drowning him out with booze or something like that, like what is he? How is he going to respond? I wonder. Yeah. Is it? I I feel like booze are pretty well. I, we're in different territory. Yeah. But I but I I, I feel like silence is kind of as far as you know we we mm-hmm. we've. Even even the sort of the the modern spectacle of like you know one side's clapping the other side is like dead silent sitting down that's yeah. pretty that's pretty new that yeah. where it's that stark but I can't think of like booze maybe that's more really. extreme than 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 I'm remembering yeah. maybe like a few you know isolated but I can't right. think of 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 I don't know in some ways I almost wonder like maybe that'd be better like what you know it kind of like you know <laughs> House of Commons or yeah. something like yeah, that. yeah exactly exactly although it's a different thing this is this is the you know this is um one of the ways in which our whole system is anomalous that we that we combine the head of government with the head of state right which is pretty rare you know you have you have constitutional monarchies and in most parliamentary democracies you have a ceremonial president and we combine the mm-hmm. two and so there is that sense in which the president is at least supposed to kind of represent the state right right it's not just the head of government you know kind of transitory head of government it has a you know a a um you know it's a unique role. It's yeah. Different. So anyway, I'm curious. What do you expect from Stacey Abrams? I mean, the she's doing the Democratic response, and obviously, in the past, everyone who has responded to the State of the Union has made some sort of gaffe or embarrassing moment. It's not a great venue. She's a rising star in the party. She's yeah. ran for governor in Georgia, lost to Brian Kemp, uh, but is kind of being recruited for a Senate race there in 2020, right? Who is, wait, who's the... I can't remember who's who, up? who is up in 2020, but anyways, sort of like, you right. know, has a, yeah, seems to have a star. bright political yeah. future. No, totally. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, it is, it is a very hard, it's a hard... I'm just yeah. remembering Steve Bashir, the governor of Kentucky, who did the speech in the silent diner. It was like dark and there were like a dozen stoic old men sitting right, around him. And right. it's like not a great uh, yeah. inspiring scene. Well, or also like Bobby Jindal yeah. or like Marco Rubio. And the water, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Rubio, I, you know, he's still around. So I yeah. guess he's recovered from that. But Jindal never, I mean, that was, he became kind of like a laughing stock yeah. after that. Right. I think, I think she'll be fine. Uh, I mean, I think she'll be more than fine. I think she'll, she'll do well. I think, again, it is just hard to, you know, hard to command the stage when you don't have the stage. Yeah. Uh, and I, and one of the other challenges is all also that, you are speaking for the whole opposition and you need to, you know, you can't get too far out on a limb on your own issues or sort of your own faction of the party. So that does, you you do have to right. be sort of general. And, and last stuff. year, Joe Kennedy delivered the response. And I think it was kind of, I don't remember where exactly it was, but he was speaking in front of a crowd of generally people who are supportive and I think that at least gave some energy to the speech. Yeah. Obviously that was sort of overshadowed by the fact that he had like some drool coming out of his <laughs> mouth and that seems to be the only thing you remember from it. Yeah. In, yeah. In, well that's uh, on 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 both fronts you're it, it is a news vacuum yeah. in many ways. So people are looking for these kind of right. silly little right. things that are that are extraneous. Um you know it's it, it's true that like I remember like back in like back under Reagan, you know, Tip O'Neill used to do, you know, the whole idea of having like 
some someone else do it is pretty new. It used mm. to be like the speaker or something, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Uh, and like Tip O'Neill would do it. And he'd just be like sitting in a chair, you know, very kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, you see fireside the, chat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and somewhere in the Capitol or something like that. So, you know, I think she'll do great. There's, there's a reason she's a rising star. It's just, again, it, it is an inherently difficult, uh, it's an inherently difficult gig. So that's my take on that. But let's, let's get into, uh, talking about the inaugural. Right. So last night was one of those nights. It's kind of becoming more and more common these days when, what was it, about eight o'clock, the New York Times sent a push alert. I was out with some journalist friends last night. Everyone kind of paused and grabbed their phones that the, uh, what was it, the the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York sent a subpoena to the Trump inaugural committee. Josh, you jumped on that news. Kind of tell us what's going on. Catch up our listeners. Yeah, sure. So news broke last night that the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, as you said, sent a subpoena to the Trump inaugural committee. I should note that this probe, maybe to give listeners a bit of a history of the investigation, it started last year in April when the FBI raided Michael Cohen's apartment and office in New York City. And one thing they found was a recording between Michael Cohen and a friend of Melania Trump's, a woman named Stephanie Winston-Walkoff, who also is the uh, inaugural committee's largest vendor. So they find a recording of a phone call between the two of them in which it's not entirely clear what was happening, but supposedly it was Wolkoff expressing concern, whatever that might have been, about uh, expenditures at the inaugural. And this inauguration was had record fundraising, right. almost twice as much as Obama's yes. inaugural, is that right? But a relatively low... S- Spend and it's not, or at least documented spend or something like that. Right. So they took in 107 million dollars in terms of donations, which is yeah almost twice of the uh, previous record, which I think was Obama 2009, if I'm remembering correctly. But the issue is that uh, they, in terms of the number of events and the number of things they put on, they had like half or at least fewer events of you know the previous inaugural. I mean, the attendance was low. So <laughs> what, what, else, what are you going right. to do? Yeah, as we right. all remember. But like for example, like the head of the Bush inaugural. Well, but I guess yeah. that just to be clear, that stuff is run by like the National Park Service, right? Sure, right. Like they're not paying for like the the, the, the bandstand and, yeah. and stuff on the yeah. actual inauguration. This is the parties and stuff yeah, like the balls. That. I mean, there are public events that are free. But so right. you know, the guy who ran the Bush inaugural in 2005 told me that with the money they raised, they could have put on two Bush inaugurals. But instead, right. but the Trump one had had fewer events than the one in 2005. Right. So there's this big question of where all the money went. Yeah. So last night, the, the subpoena went out to uh, the Trump inaugural committee asking, you know, it's a really broad subpoena. It's asking for uh, documents all over the place, you know, related to event attendees, all the donors, the vendors, uh, contracts, the different federal disclosure filings, as well as benefits that were handed out. But there are a few interesting points, I think, that came out of it. So, for example, they mentioned one person by name, this L.A. Uh, venture capitalist and political donor named uh, Imad Zubari. Uh, he was previously reported to have had contacts with Michael Cohen and another guy, Elliot Broidy, while at the inaugural. So that's raised a lot of people's interest. And also uh, one company called Stripe, which uh, is a credit card processing company. Wait, Stripe? Yeah. <laughs> You're familiar with that, Josh? Stripe. Yeah. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, but what's also right. what's, what's, okay. what's, what's uh, sparked people's interest is that uh, Josh Kushner, Jared Kushner's brother, is a big investor in the firm. In right, because he's a tech guy, yeah. right? I, I'll, I'll, this is totally extraneous, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, as everybody, as as probably our listeners know, uh, TPM is very focused now on subscriptions. That's where we get we get most of our money these days. And as we have launched these two new subscription tiers, um, since I'm the sort of the, you know, the person on the business side who kind of runs things too, although a lot of other things are. Uh, other people run now. In any case, I was putting together a spreadsheet, trying to put together all the money and everything. And the, my big takeaway from the spreadsheet was, man, you want to own Stripe. 
because they make so it's the class it's the classic tech and and they're really good so I they mean, just catch i mean for people who don't who don't know stripe what does it do it processes credit yeah, card process, transactions processes and i know we're totally digressing here but it processes credit card transactions so so you know you sign up for prime you put in your credit card they are the one who actually runs the credit card and a critical thing is that no small organization that isn't insane wants to take responsibility for for having your credit card because yeah. all that you know you can be hacked and all that kind of stuff so they have have the reputation for and have incredibly good security so it's just you know it, it it's yeah. just they just take care of that um, in any case it's uh, it's a classic example of how things work in tech when people make a ton of money which is to say that the there's a lot of money you got to spend up front and as you grow you spend more money but the spend is arithmetic and the revenue if you succeed as they have succeed is like exponential hmm. so i mean just to give you an example i mean it's totally random we pay in our current system we pay stripe about ninety thousand dollars a year wow wow in fees and we're a pretty small operation. Yeah, sounds good for Stripe. dollars <laughs> in fees. Yeah, it's a good business to be in. All yeah. right, Stripe. So maybe they'll get taken down and have to give us our money back. So what's the story? <laughs> what, how does Stripe fit into this, Josh? Well, the thing is we don't know. It's just uh, they asked for documents related to Stripe. We know that there's a you know Trump family connection, however tenuous. But beyond that, we're not. it's not entirely clear what the details are. So wait, so is, is the idea that they were they were taking donations through Stripe? Or I, I well, again, I mean, it's... Or maybe a, people were charged, vendors were charged through Stripe or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's very little detail in the subpoena on that part. So oh, we really okay. just don't know. Got it, yeah. got it. Okay, so so you've got this guy out in L.A., he's tied to Broidy, you've got Stripe, what else, what, else is, what else are they trying to find out about? Well, so from the subpoena, we also know um, what charges they're investigating, so what potential crimes, and that's an interesting list. And in addition to conspiracy against the U.S., it's also money laundering charges, uh, potentially, false statements, wire fraud, mail fraud, and also inaugural committee uh, disclosure violations, as well as the big one, which is the campaign finance violation of maybe letting foreigners uh, give money to the inaugural committee. And you mentioned in one of your stories today, W. Sam Patton, am I getting his name right? Yeah, yeah, Sam Who Patton. Yeah. pleaded guilty back in the fall? When was that? Yeah, that was in, at the end of August. As part of the Mueller investigation, right? It was kind of a small was, case. Yeah, it was spun off from Mueller, but he pleaded guilty uh, in D.C. federal court to a case that was brought by the D.C. federal attorney. Um, to getting to basically being a straw donor. Yeah, for, yeah. For inauguration foreign, tickets yeah. for foreign guests. Yeah, right? for some Ukrainian oligarchs. Uh, and the story there is, yeah, he, he basically admitted to funneling $50,000 he was given from this Ukrainian oligarch. Should also know as Paul Manafort's paymaster. Um, and then, small world. Yeah, small world. And uh, in exchange, so he funneled that to the committee, and in exchange, he got uh, a few tickets. Now, when we say that they that you know they they can't account for where a lot of the money went, what do we mean by that? Is I mean, do they just say we don't know, or or, or has it not been looked at that closely yet? How does that how does that work? So part of it is that. So let me split this up. I mean, there's the money that came in, the 107 million, and then there's around 102 or 3 million that was spent. Um, so they only have to disclose the top five biggest vendors publicly. And so from that, we see that they used, you know, some or groups that exist in Washington. They've done it previously. But the big red flag is that they also used this company called WIS Media Partners, which is the one that belongs to Stephanie Winston-Wolkoff, which is Melania's friend. And they got a $25, 26000000 million payout. And it's just not clear what they were doing. There was a New York Times story 
in recent months, right? That kind of detailed some of the right. spending. It was like $10,000 on makeup or something, yeah. right? I mean, and the, they were hired as like a general contractor and there was a lot, like a lot of travel over the place. And, but again, I mean, it's, it's this sort wardrobes of, and stuff right. like a lot of, I mean, what seemed like a lot of money for relatively basic yeah. goods and services, but. So how does, okay. So, so one possibility is just a lot of high living everybody you know everybody's like buying fancy clothes and getting fancy makeup and stuff like that um you know that's venal corruption at some at some level it's embarrassing it it you know but it's but it's not the same as like big payoffs from foreigners and stuff do we have any idea where this is going or where oh let me and let me ask you one other question about this we say it's from the southern district of new york is this under the same investigative umbrella as the Cohen stuff? Like the U.S. attorneys recused and all that kind of stuff? Um, on the recusal, I'm not sure. I know that one of the prosecutors who is on the subpoena is the same one who was involved in the Cohen case. Okay, so yeah. it seems to grow part of one And especially if, one it came, if the phone call came from a raid of Cohen's apartment, it kind of probably falls under that. Right, yeah. And I should note there's a separate investigation in the Eastern District of New York, so in Brooklyn Federal, uh, Brooklyn Federal Prosecutor, uh, who's looking specifically into this issue of foreigners getting access to the inauguration through by, pay, by contributing money. And so you were asking earlier, you know, what's like kind of the big allegation here? Right. The question is, is whether or not there were policy favors being given in exchange for, for right. yeah, as part so of So that's an entirely trade-offs. separate investigation. It's just, I mean, they're both investigating the same thing, and that was just a tidbit that came out of the New York Times story on this yesterday, and we just don't really know, again, the details on I mean, let's, I should reiterate, this investigation is really early stages. Right. Yeah. So, okay, so when we say that we don't know where the money went, like, we, we, it sounds like we know at a top-line level, like, this contractor got this much, this, so you said, I think you said, you know, raised $107 million, spent $102 million. Mm-hmm. It's more what happened one layer down. If if this woman's company got twenty five million dollars, what did that go to? Exactly, and also because we only know the top five biggest vendors, there's still you know I think forty or fifty million dollars where we just don't know. I mean, what happened to it? Um, and again, given that they were around fifty million over compared to previous inaugurals and how many events they put on, right? There's a big question, right? And so okay, so and and so it sounds like this this operates more like a 501c3 in terms of the disclosure requirements than like a campaign. Because in a campaign, you've got to... Right, it's a nonprofit. ...itemize like everything. But here, it's just kind of some top-line general information. So uh, there are two disclosures they have to file. There's one with the FEC where they have to basically disclose every single donor that comes in. Um, and there could be a violation there if there were foreigners or Americans who were you know, acting as... A, who were using their American citizenship to basically shield foreign donations right, that were coming right, in. Right, right, But they also have to make a separate filing to the IRS. Um, and that's where we know some of this information from from this 501. And I think it was a C4, but yeah. Right, 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 right. Got you know, I'm, Josh Marshall, I'm curious. Uh, he hasn't, no, you know, no individual person has been accused of wrongdoing, either in an indictment or, you know, real allegations. But Tom Barrick, is that how you say his name? Yes. The LA-based private equity real estate guy, he chaired the inauguration, right? Right. right. He's also the one who introduced Paul Manafort to the Trump campaign, right? It seems like he always comes back to the center of this whole story, yet there seems to be very little scrutiny of him, his role. I mean, what do you make of his involvement kind of? You know, it's exactly as you say. He He's sort of hovered as someone who seemed to be either responsible for or kind of, uh, you know, kind of 
calling the shots in, 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 in the background on lots of things. You know, he, he brought in Manafort. The other thing that has always seemed very telling to me is that he basically took care of Rick Gates after the Manafort blowout. So um, the, the timeline, I may have a, a little out of order, but basically Rick Gates is working for the campaign. Manafort gets bounced. He's kept... Maybe he's sort of seconded to the RNC, but he's kept on the payroll through through the uh, through the campaign, and eventually chaired the inauguration. Well, he's or he was deputy chair of the inauguration. He was like yeah, the executive he, director, right? Or something. Yeah, he was deputy chair, but operationally, people he say he was running it. it right. Day. So, yeah. so he got he he was brought in to run that under under Barrick. When that ended, he was hired by Barrick to basically be Barrick's DC lobbyist, and he worked for in that role. I think up until the day he was indicted. So basically, Tom Barrick, who's the guy who who seems to have played some very key role in bringing Manafort into the Trump campaign very early in, in calendar 2016, he keeps Rick Gates on, you know, with a paycheck all the way until the end of 2017. And, and that's just like, that's fishy. Right there, and 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 again, I mean, and he and Trump, are, Barrick and Trump, are old friends just from the real estate and yeah, business world. and they see, they see. It seems to be one of these uh, friendships where, you know, Barrick is, I think, by any estimation, a more successful businessman, Rick, sort of real estate developer, than Trump is. Obviously, doesn't have the same high profile, right? Uh, but yeah, they have a they have this relationship, and and that's always seemed. And there's even this thing where where Barrick did this what has always seemed to me fairly shady kind of thing to help Trump get the uh, concession or lease to develop the D.C. post office into what's now the Trump you know Trump International D.C. Hotel or whatever whatever it's called. What is is Barrick coming up in all this stuff, or is he still Josh? You know, he gave one extended uh, interview to the special counsel last year. And as far as I know, that's been the extent of their interest in him. Um, and he, as you say, I mean, he's kind of always hovering in the background. But at least none of the allegations that have emerged directly from the uh, inauguration have really touched him directly yet. Right. Well, it's, it, it is one of these things where it seems conceivable to me, because a lot of these things are... <sighs> sloppiness and and just brazenness plays a continual role through all of these escapades. Uh, And so it's possible to me that with this, he may have just known to kind of keep his distance and and not sort of involve himself on stuff that would get him in trouble. Uh, Because he's clearly a pretty sharp guy. And and, um, well, yeah. I didn't know much about his... LA life, but he, at least in the media on the East Coast, right? I mean, Los Angeles is a long ways from New York, and maybe that's partly to do with, you know, the media business being based here, that he doesn't get quite as much attention or coverage, but he seems to keep a low profile just in general from at least what I can tell. I mean, as billionaires go, yeah. 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 Right. yeah, right. yeah. And, and, and again, he, 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 he it, when, you, when you look into his past, He's involved in a lot of stuff. He has very deep ties into um, the Gulf states, and he he is the son of 
son of Lebanese immigrants, who actually speaks Arab, you know, uh, Arab Christian background, speaks Arabic. So his early career, a lot of it was in the Gulf. It's where he's gotten a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, kind of sovereign wealth type money to do his various things. So, yeah, I, who knows? It, it's, it's always seemed to me there must be more going on there than we know. He met Manafort in Lebanon, apparently. Um, was it in, in, in Lebanon? I thought it was, was in it? the, I thought it was in the, one of the Gulf states, but okay. maybe I, you know. I, 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 I could have gotten mixed up. Well, but, but I, but yeah. I, but I, I, I remember this too, that it seemed like in the, at some point in the seventies. Right. It was really far back. Yeah. That yeah. Manafort was doing something in the Gulf and, and, uh, uh, Barrick was, you know, kind of lived there. And, yeah. and so, yeah, they go, they go way, way back. There's a interesting New York Post story that was published like two days before the inaugural where Barrick goes on the record with him and just says, you know, Trump is planning every single detail of this. He wants, you know, everything to just be huge and perfect. But in, in light of, you know, all the all these allegations, it's like, it's sort of funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so let, let's shift gears and talk about, there's another story. Um, you, you've been following the Roger Stone story. And there was something you caught about Jerome Corsi and Roger Stone and, and maybe another detail about the uh, Podesta emails and the Access Hollywood. What, what's, what's the story there? So Jerome Corsi for the past few weeks, uh, and really basically since November, has been kind of banding his version of events about to the media. And one crucial point is that on the day that um, the Access Hollywood tape dropped. So that was, I think, October 6, 2016. Um, he got a series of very frantic phone calls. He claims to have gotten a series of really frantic phone calls from Roger Stone telling him that, you know, there's this tape with Billy Bush and Donald Trump, and we need to get WikiLeaks to start publishing the emails to push this out of the headlines. Um, and Corsi has supplied phone records, which he claims to have given to the special counsel, uh, that show that, you know, Stone called him basically a few times during the day. Um, and so if you look at the timeline of what happened on October 6th, uh, you find that David Farenthold, the reporter at the Washington Post who broke that story, got a copy of the tape at 11 a.m. and they published it at 4 p.m. The phone calls all occur between 11.30 a.m. and, as I recall, 2.30 p.m., which suggests that Stone, if course he's telling the truth, it would suggest that Stone had advanced knowledge right. that the tape was coming. And there's a big question, how did he know that? Well, okay. So as a former NBC employee, I feel like I have to say, um, my guess is someone at NBC, he just is yeah. plugged in with, rather than someone at the Washington Post who got word well, of but, 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 but here's the thing, they go the to Trump exactly. and say, hey, we got it. That, that's right. always it, seemed to me, that's the obvious explanation in my mind, is they have to go to Trump. You can't just drop that yeah. with no warning. You right. need to go for comment. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's... And when, so after the tape came out, the kind of the Washington Post and others kind of did like a little, I don't, I don't want to call it like a hagiography, but like they did like a real kind of in-depth, you know, how did we get this story? Right. And they all say, right. you know, well, we immediately contacted the Trump campaign for comment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which you'd have to. That goes without saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you, that is absolutely the first, I mean, it may not be the first call you make, but it is absolutely a call that gets made. You have to. You have to go. Right. You have something that explosive. You need, you need some chance to give an explanation or whatever. This is just journalism Basics. 101. Um, it also could have come from it, you know, could have come from sure. a lot of places, but that seems to me a perfectly adequate explanation. On the NBC point, I would note that, again, if you look at these timelines, NBC first uncovered the tape uh, on Monday of that week. And it right, was a few released, days before. Right. It was released on Friday. So it was kind of in the ether at NBC for four or five days, and then it was Friday. Right, they were trying to figure out what to do with it. Right, right. 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 So, well, okay, I remember this part of it now that, because I remember that was, they were sort of in their own trouble or under their own scrutiny of like, were they just going to sit on it? Right. Um, and and it is is the guy, I don't think we know, 
but I seem to remember some speculation that someone at NBC basically dropped a dime on NBC and, and sent it to Fahrenheit because they either they weren't confident what NBC would do. And, and, and it is a kind of an awkward yeah, situation yeah. for NBC since they're the... They're not really... And it's a separate business unit. It's the entertainment side of the company as opposed to the news gathering or reporting side, right? Right. Yeah. No, it's a... a, I'm not saying, you know, feel terribly bad for them, but it it is a a funny thing because in in theory, in theory, you could say, you know, Trump was doing this thing and this was off, you know, kind of off the record, you know, not when things were... It's a a weird situation, but but in any case... Um, but what you're describing of that timeline really makes it sound like it came from the Trump campaign because right. it didn't apparently these if if Corsi is telling the truth, which is a big if um, that the calls from Stone only started after Fahrenheit got the tape. And I would add that there are details in the indictment of Roger Stone, which although they aren't you know completely prove you know this theory, they do kind of hint in that direction. One big one is just that we know that Stone was directed in July uh, after WikiLeaks first started releasing the DNC emails to try and make contact with them and all that. That's basically famous now. Um, the second point is that after the you know WikiLeaks started dumping the emails on October 6th, um, uh, an associate of Steve Bannon, tech, we don't know who exactly, but te- that person texted Stone and said, well done. And right. afterwards, Stone... In the indictment, it says that he went and claimed credit, and that's also something that Corsi in his book says that prosecutors told him, that they knew that Stone had been claiming credit after. So there are details that line up with each other and that you know the prosecutors have made in you know, federal pleadings and all that, So, which, again, I don't think it completely proves the theory, but it certainly points in a direction. Right. And, and, and it's also not, uh, you know, again, being in the position of trying to kind of argue for uh, Jerome Corsi's credibility, it's not totally clear why he would at some level, it's a statement against interest, right? Right. I mean, he doesn't have a, like an obvious reason. To, I mean, he's, he's in a fight with Stone now, but he's also at some level implicating himself. Um, it maybe not in a crime, but in in the whole sort of shenanigans. But let's let's j- just there's so many uh, random details here and so many different colorful players. I think it's worth stepping back and walking through what this means. This mean if this if this is true, and and it seems like there is good reason to think it's true, although we don't have proof, that people in the Trump campaign knew that they had a key person who was in touch with WikiLeaks, who could make things happen with WikiLeaks, i.e., they had some sort of back channel to WikiLeaks, and then when they when they s- saw that this seemingly campaign ending thing could be happening they kind of put word through dude get through to wikileaks and i don't know if uh, we mentioned this earlier on but just so readers uh, listeners are clear you know wikileaks started dumping these emails 30 minutes after the washington post published that's the crucial detail right do you and, think partly sorry to interrupt but yeah. the re- the fact that it was like a friday night do you think that sort of obscures just the timing a little bit that people don't remember exactly you well, know, also remember it's not quite friday night it's friday i mean i remember yeah, it. i'm friday, sure yeah, you remember yeah. it too uh, it's Friday. It's like Friday, four o'clock. Mm-hmm. So there's like, 
there's there's, there's some daylight left. Yeah, yeah, it's not like it's ten o'clock on Friday night. It was it's, also the day that uh, let's keep in mind. I think it was the day of the was it the intelligence agencies released uh, an assessment that the Russians were meddling in the election. Was it the same day? I, th- I thought it was the same day. It yeah. Could be. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, that I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, it does. And and that, and and before that, you have the whole kind of like you know Podesta's time in the barrel that that notorious yeah. tweet from right. Roger Stone. So there's like all of this like. Circum, you know, th- there's all of these signs that that Roger Stone is the back channel or is part of the back channel, and he and until the 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 federal investigators got involved, he was happy to be clear. I'm definitely the back channel, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, so there's just there's so many of these things, and what is it? He's saying, well, you know, Podesta, because I'm sure that his brother, some nonsense right, about why right. he said that. And to loop this back to the inaugural a little bit, you know, there's a, there was a question initially over who the Trump campaign official was that direct, supposedly directed Stone in July. Um, and Stone has said now on the record to multiple different organizations, and he did at a press conference last week, that that person was Rick Gates. That he was the one who supposedly directed Stone to go after to go and make contact with WikiLeaks. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I totally was a, missed that. It was, he was identified as what, a senior campaign official? In, and, in the and everyone yeah. was kind of... You know, speculating so who would be who would be senior enough to kind of make that right. Okay, you know, so that's direction. July, and so that's when Manafort is still completely in the saddle before mm-hmm. things blow up for him. Right. And but we but we don't know who the Bannon associate is in October, and that can't no. be him because he's not a Bannon associate. That wouldn't make sense. Right. They, I mean, they're kind of yeah, they're different camps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we, but that's and he hasn't. No one said who that. Oh, I guess. You mean Rick Gates, or? Well, no, no, no. No one has come forward and says, "Well, did I guess Stone denies that even happened, right?" Um, the did, October reach out or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he, he sort of said vaguely, like, "This was my usual like fluff," or "This was my usual like trying to hype on libs," something like weird. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he hasn't. No, not specifically. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. And, you know, I should note that in the context of this press conference he gave last week where he talked about Gates, I mean, he was basically immediately trying to, like, cast doubt in his credibility as a witness because he said, you know, Gates is looking for a deal. He's motiv- He's like a motivated witness against me. So he's already doing but, things that, yeah. But he's not, but he's not denying, well, wait, what, but he's not denying that Gates did reach out to him. Not at all, no. Oh, okay. He's basically confirming it, yeah. Right, okay, but he's just saying that he's going to lie about what he told me or and, some. Well, here's, here's like what he said that was crucial. He said there's no electronic record of it. So he, he, he's basically saying it's going to be my word versus his word. Mm. So, <laughs> so he's he's both confirming it and also saying you can't prove it. Yeah, it's kind of classic Roger Stone yeah. move, I guess. Yeah. Right, 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 right. All right, so just to get back to the inauguration story, Josh, um, what else, you know, what should our listeners kind of be on the lookout for? Are you basically just kind of... You know, it's early stages of the investigation, but you're just kind of looking for more reporting or more threads to pull. Well, you know, I think there's a big question in, you know, who's a victim and who's a perpetrator here. So, like, let's look at this guy, Imad Zubari. Um, you know, it's possible that I think have some, as some people have speculated that he was looking to, you know, gain access by paying somebody off. It's also entirely possible that he was basically shaken down or extorted for $900,000, and it's not really clear what he got in return for that. So to me, that's a really interesting direction going forward. Um, you know, again, we're going to see if it touches Barrick. We're going to uh, see what happens to all the different, you know, Trump family associates that were there. Again, I mean, it's Melania's friend, you know, from like, for like years, who was in charge of this vendor that took $26 million mysteriously. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah. is, is, is this Zubari guy, has he come up in any of the other threads of 
this whole story? Or He's come this? up in the Gulf thread. Uh, okay. So basically, the reason he was... Some of the reporting has suggested that when he met with Michael Cohen um, in December of 2016, uh, what he was, what they were discussing supposedly was um, this big inve- this big infrastructure project, and specifically whether or not there would be some kind of buy-in from the Qatar Investment Authority into the Trump infrastructure plan. Okay, so that's a trillion dollars or something that was going to be right. you know budgeted right. for that. Right, right, right. Okay, so he's part of, uh, in some sense. And that leads that Broidy is tied to that, and then I guess even like George Nader. What is it? Yeah, George Nader. Yeah. Right, right, right. So all these that whole kind of Gulf state part of this thing. Right. So he has some connection to that. He does. Yeah. And with I should also note that his you know spokespeople will kind of say like yeah he met with Michael Cohen a few times but there was no meeting longer than ten minutes. So you know just for full disclosure on that right, front. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Just to shift gears a little bit, I wanted to bring in Joe Regazzo, our executive publisher at TPM. Hey, Joe. Hey, David. How you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. Joe is the one who basically helps keep TPM running. You won't see his byline on the site. You won't see his name really pop up, but he's pretty crucial to the whole operation. So we're glad to have you here. So it's been the last couple of weeks, a grim stretch of media news. It feels like this is sort of cyclical, right? Places will kind of have some cutbacks. But it's usually isolated to maybe one publication or another. You know, it's the New York Times offering buyouts, which seems to happen every so often. But over the last week, we've had, or a couple of weeks, we've had, what, 1,200 plus jobs eliminated, Joe? Like yeah, at least 1,200. Yeah. yeah. And they keep coming. And so tell us, like, where are these, you know, centered and what's kind of going on? Well, I think that in each case, there's a slightly unique story. But I think that the overall trend is one towards consolidation. Ken Doctor uh, at Neiman Lab had a really great piece a few days ago, and he was basically answering the question, can we view all of these layoffs as some sort of related pattern, or is it a series of unconnected coincidences? And he makes the argument that right now, the key strategy in a lot of media, especially when you look at the major newspaper conglomerates, is one towards cost-cutting. And the financial metrics point towards that as a successful strategy. And so that is what they are setting up for. You've seen this sort of ancestral web of Gannett and and McClatchy and a lot of these huge publishers sort of vying for either to take over or sometimes, I mean, in the case of Gannett, at one point they were talking about potentially being taken over and then almost in the same breath, potentially taking over someone else. And so a lot of this cost cutting goes towards that. And then I think there's also a very macro level story here, which is, I think that even though a recession is not, you know, coming up, we don't know that there's one immediately or imminent. I think that there's a lot of getting ready for if that is the case in the for future. For turbulence ahead. And Josh, you wrote a piece uh, recently kind of looking at some of these. And just to review some of the some of the news for listeners who may not be aware, it's Gannett and McClatchy, which are kind of traditional publishers of newspapers. And Gannett owns USA Today, which you'll see in your hotel room. And And on top of that, we have these digital companies that have also cut back, including BuzzFeed, which has been a rising star in the industry, what, for five years or so now? Got Vice. You've got um, Huffington Post laying off. And this is like the, the second round. I mean, Huffington is owned by Verizon, like, you know, kind of at a couple stages right. sort of removed, uh, owned by Verizon. I feel like, like 
Huffington had a had a round of layoffs like six months ago or something like that. So this is the second one for them. I mean, it, the story with the with the traditional publishers, the ones that are at least historically rooted in print, like in some ways, this is an old story. They've there have been, you know, cuts for years now uh, in print, and that's and that's accelerating or accelerating. There's not that much more to cut for right. for a lot of these papers. Um, the big difference is th- that you're seeing sort of like equivalent cuts in what are supposed to be the sort of the digital winners in the in the in the news publishing world. So you know, Vice, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post. These are the the traditional story has been that these digital publishers are killing off the print publications. And to a certain extent, that has been true. Obviously, the the traditional publishers have also been um, moving to digital. But that's the, you know, that's really what makes this uh, kind of, you know, a new story. And I think, you know, my sense is that it's consolidation in the advertising industry, which has a lot to do with the with the social media platforms. Um, there's not enough ad money, and a, a really big part of this that doesn't get talked about as much is that these companies were getting tons and tons of venture capital investment, which really sustained the whole thing. And because of the stuff now happening in in the advertising and a, b- a bunch of different things happening at once, those. Uh, the people, the investors see that the sort of the big payoff that they thought was going to be there is not there. So they're, they're simultaneously getting squeezed on the advertising front, but they're also having to pull back because the continued, you know, the continuous inflow of new investment that that's being cut off. If we can rewind just a minute, is that VC money predicated on the fact that what one of these places would kind of crack the code for digital publishing or that it would create some you know, new form of content or new, you know, just sort of journalism venture that will be so irresistible that it'll just make a bunch of money? Or what's like, you know, what is the long-term prospect for those investors? I think it's the classic scale play. There's this belief that you'd be able to create an audience large enough to demand rates and command high advertising rates such that you would be able to grow your way to profitability over time. And I think what we're finding out is that maybe that wasn't necessarily the case, and we could get into a whole variety of reasons. Um, But I think fundamentally that was the idea. And I think Josh got to a very, very important point in the post he wrote touching on this, which is that you have to remember what the end goal is when you're setting out, which is not always necessarily to just create a sustainable, profitable business. Sometimes the goal... The, the idea of profitability is not really even on the table, or maybe it's a tertiary option at best. But the option is to eventually go public or sell. And that is an entirely different way of running a business. And that is that it can't be overstated how important that distinction is. If you know, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but when you look at like a Silicon Valley model, a lot of the companies that come out of Silicon Valley, they're almost not companies. They're their products, their infrastructures, their their things designed to be acquired by other. So it's businesses. like creating potential, sort of. Yeah, and you're creating audiences. Yeah, and one one thing I think is really important to to keep in mind here, and and that is that you know a lot of a lot of these uh, uh, companies that are that are are hitting headwinds now, the money 
came from, in a lot of cases, came from venture capital that was most experienced funding tech. Um, and the key there is, is that a lot of venture capital funding for tech is, you know, they talk about a lot with venture capital, you know, you're going to lose money on nine out of the 10 ventures, but you're going to make, you know, unbelievable profits on the 10th, 10th venture. And what is behind that is the idea basically that you're going to get lock-in, that you're going to have network effects. You know, we talked earlier in the episode about Stripe, you know, this company that is sort of like the company now to process credit cards. And that is a case where they're big enough, everybody's doing business with them now, they do it efficiently, they do it well. So it's just, you know, gonna make money from now to the end of time, basically. And it's not really obvious with, a comp- with, with that kind of company, is someone gonna, else gonna come along and do it better? Pro- probably not, not for cheaper. So a lot of the investments in media were based on the idea that it would be something like tech, that you get really big and you get that kind of lock-in. And then you have such a commanding position that you can kind of, you know, fiddle the switches and stuff and, and make it profitable once you get big enough. And it's only one part of the equation, but I think a key part of the equation is that a lot of the investors thought that it would work that way, that if you got big enough, that you get that kind of lock-in. And that's ne- that's really not... It's not the way the internet works, really. It's not right? the way media works. It's not the way content works. Because someone else can all... I mean, if you if you think about it, you know, thank God, that's that's not... It's, it's never that kind of like, you know, one source of news just like kills it and does it better than anybody else. And then they're the only news organization. Right. That's, it's, it's never going to be like, like that. Um, and that's good, uh, if, you know, for civic terms. Uh, but that has real implications on the investment side. And, and so that is, so you have all these, you know, all these different things coming together. Again, the av- things going on in the advertising industry, tech's role there, uh, making everything programmatic and, and driving down rates and all this. So there's all these kind of things happening um, at once that, you know, they're all kind of coming due and all coming due at once. They're sort of, they're, they are, um, what, you know, the word, they're kind of building on each other. Right. They're, they're, they're all intensifying each other. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary situation. Yeah. I'd make one additional point. I think it's really key too when you look at the layoffs where they come within the companies. I think what's the most concerning as a, as a citizen is that the hardest type of content generally to monetize via advertising is hard-hitting journalism or you know in advertising parlance they'll say it has rough edges and so no one wants to sponsor an isis story series or whatever right yeah and so when you see these cuts you'll see that it's the it's the journal it's the hard news often that is take is bearing the brunt of it and that's a really it's a disappointing scenario but financially that's what makes sense. I think it was in the BuzzFeed memo. I hope I'm not airing here, where they specifically talked about sort of redeploying resources towards uh, a studio model of, right. of creating, you know, video and, and things like that. And so um, that's generally not going to be the newsiest stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just important. And again, there's so many levels to these, to the cuts and the layoffs and the changing media landscape that I think it's important step to step back sometimes and really really break down 
at a granular level who's bearing the brunt of these things because we toss around words like media and content and those mean a lot of different things depending on who you're talking to yeah joe just a final question for you josh had mentioned earlier margaret sullivan's point the columnist for the washington post who said you know it's striking to think about these layoffs and the kind of current economic climate right that unemployment is at 3.9 percent we had 300,000 jobs in January, despite the government shutdown. Uh, do you expect it to get worse before it gets better? I mean, what does the next six to 12 months look like, do you think? In my opinion, I think it's almost a guarantee that it will get worse before it gets better, because I think it's just a fact that the tenets of journalism and capitalism don't always line up very nicely. The idea of the profit motive doesn't sit well you know with the idea of doing civic journalism that doesn't necessarily monetize well it's an inherent difficulty and i think when you're looking at these major players whether they're the newspaper conglomerates or whether the digital media firms when they're talking about needing to cut costs to become attractive attractive takeover prospects it's difficult to imagine a scenario where it doesn't continue to get worse before it gets better and yeah, it's it's pretty dire. On that note, we Why? encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to yeah, TPM subscribe. Prime. To subscribe to Prime, absolutely. I, well, here let me add one other thing that I think that I think is important is, is that the meat. It's a cliche at this point, but but a big thing that happened to you know the media is they lost their monopolies, and that and that really was devastating to the profit margins of of uh, major major metropolitan newspapers, all but a few of them. But one thing I think is important to keep in mind is that media historically has been a, a pretty profitable business to be in. And I think the key is that it is it can be profitable, but it is hard for it to be profitable at the, at the scale that the these investors want it to be. Again, you know, go back to Stripe. Those people are just going to be making billions for forever, right? And that is not something that is that is uh, necessarily realistic in in news publishing. That and this is you know, there's all this kind of nostalgia about uh, you know family ownership of of news organizations, the way the Washington Post used to be, the way the New York Times still is. There's always going to be a tension between between the levels of profitability and what you're doing in 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 news terms but that really I, it it is really key that the um the internet news economy to a great degree was uh you know funded invested in you know created by people who wanted big big profits and that is that was always going to be a challenge and probably a an unrealistic expectation. And that's just been compounded by everything that's going on with the advertising industry and, and you know, and whatever. So there you go. It's a pretty bad, pretty bad situation. Yeah. Definitely subscribe to Prime. Yeah, yeah subscribe, subscribe to, to Prime. Uh, Ad-free, inside all yeah, of them. <laughs> all, all of our subscriptions. So, all right. So I guess that's, let me, let me uh, remind everybody that as long as we're talking about for-profit business models, that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Give it, ready to give it a swirl, get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Yeah, I would just add, we just had an employee who, who recently moved to Vermont and he made it known that 
One of the first things he did when he got there was check all the local grocery stores for <laughs> Grady's. Did they have Grady's? They did. They did. So he's ready That's to go. That's impressive. That is ready for Grady's. Yeah, distribution of. I guess, but I mean, Vermont's probably a pretty good, uh, a pretty good demo. Yeah, you would get so. yeah. yeah. All right, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Thank cool. you for having me, Josh. Later. Later. <laughs>